Gospel of John is a very special and unique book. It's one of the four Gospels, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are so similar, they're referred to as the Synoptic Gospels. Everything written in the Gospel of John is in perfect harmony with everything that's written in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John's Gospel contains a great deal of information that only John's Gospel uh, you know, records. And the uniqueness of it is given to us in the last two verses of chapter 20 and the last verse of chapter 21. In the last verse of his gospel, it says, and many other things Jesus did, where if they had been written, even all the books of the world could not contain that information. That's quite a statement. In the last part of John chapter 20, it says, and truly many other signs did Jesus do in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, I don't know how many more he did that were not written, but that means the ones that were written were written for us in a, for a special reason, according to divine wisdom of God, divine inspiration. Now, the word sign is a, another word for miracle, except it's a miracle with a special message attached to it. Usually, when Christ performed a miracle as recorded in the Gospel of John, it gave the basis for a sermon or message to follow. For example, in John chapter 6, Christ fed 5,000 men besides the women and the children with five loaves and two fishes. Immediately, he launched into a sermon about him being the bread of life. But you'll find that pretty constantly throughout John's Gospel. So in the Gospel of John, you have seven signs of seven miracles. This morning, I want to take a look at two of them, the first one and the last one, for a comparison and a contrast this morning. In John chapter 2, we have the setting for a wedding. It says, and after the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And Mary was there, and Jesus being called to the wedding, and his disciples. Now, this was a very joyful occasion. But if you look at the last miracle that was done, which is the raising of Lazarus from the grave, we find a sharp contrast, don't we? Because at a wedding, there's joy, there's happiness, there's festivity in the air. But in a funeral or burial, we find there's sorrow and there's sadness. I remember about three and a half years ago, going down to Big Harcourt Church to attend a funeral service. Funeral services for Sister Mary Hurst, Brother Doyle Hurst's wife at the time. It was a time of sadness. It was a time of sorrow. Uh, but yet, we could feel the presence of the Lord in that service. The Lord was there. Then yesterday, I went back to Big Harpeth Church, again on behalf of Brother Doyle. This time, it was for a wedding. And the atmosphere was one of joy and happiness. Everybody had a smile on their face and they were just, you could tell they were just happy to be there. And if not to see it, I really felt like the Lord's presence was there on that occasion as well. So my point is, we serve a God who's everywhere present and nowhere absent. We serve a God that can be with us on top of the mountain, with us in the midst of the valleys. In 1 Kings chapter 20, you have the king of Syria, who was a drunken, evil man, Besides, he wants to have war for no reason with Israel. 
And God tells the king of Israel, it's going to happen. He says, but fear not. He said, for I will deliver them into your hand. You shall consume them. And sure enough, that's what happened. They came, they attacked Israel. Israel defeated them soundly. And after it was all over, the servants, this king came to him. He says, well, you know, we fought them in the hills. He says, uh, their God's the God of the hills, God of the mountains. But if we fight them in the plains or in the valleys, he says, we can win down there. Well, when he said that, God heard it as God hears all things. He goes to the king once again of Israel and says, they think I'm only a God of the hills, not a God of the valleys. He says, they shall come and you shall defeat them soundly again. And sure enough, they came foolishly and attacked Israel in the valley and in the plain. But God who defeated them in the hills defeated them in the plains, in the valleys. He's the same God in one place. He is in the other. And that's the outlook of the world. That's the outlook of wicked and evil men who don't understand anything about the almighty God. In the book of Jeremiah 23, 23, the Lord asked three questions. He said, am I a God at hand or a Lord at hand? And not a Lord far off. Can any man hide himself in secret places that I cannot see him? Do not I feel heaven and earth? Three questions, three answers. The Lord asks the questions. The Lord gives the answers. Am I a God afar off and not a God nearby? Am I geographical? Am I that kind of God? Am I not here nearby and here afar off? Yes, he is. Can any man hide himself in secret places? that I cannot see him. I think some men think they can. There are those who do things behind closed doors not to be seen, and they're not seen of men, but they're always seen of God. Remind me of the story of the little boy and his daddy going down the street, and his daddy got to the doors of a saloon, you know, <laughs> decided he wanted to go in. He looked one way and he looked the other, didn't see anybody, he started to go in, and the little boy tugged his coat and says, you didn't look up. He didn't look up. So he's a God everywhere, isn't he? No man can hide himself in secret places. Do not I feel heaven and also feel earth? We believe that our God's a God of heaven and a God of the earth. And so in John chapter 2, we have a scene here where there's happiness and joy. And it should be if, if, if the Lord is present. Now notice, Mary was there indicating that this wedding... Uh, was with somebody that was probably good friends of Mary or perhaps members of the family to, in, some, in some distance or whatever. But Jesus was called to the wedding. If he had not been called to the wedding, he wouldn't have been there. He was called to the wedding along with his disciples. Now in reading the first chapter, chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, we find five disciples at this time. There were two that followed Jesus, and one of them is identified as Andrew, Andrew goes and tells Peter about the experience. He says, we found him in Moses' law has spoken concerning the Messiah. And then the Lord Jesus Christ finds Philip, and Philip finds Nathaniel. That's five. We know who the five are, and Jesus has five disciples following him. And Jesus was called to the wedding. Now, if Jesus hadn't been called to the wedding, he wouldn't have been there, and this wouldn't have been recorded for us. But Jesus was called. That was a wise decision, was it not? That was a wise decision. See, marriage is an institution of God. It wasn't something man thought about one time. If man thought about it, it might be all right to discard it, not observe it. But God established it. That's why Hebrews 13, 4 reads like it does. 
Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. He says those who live outside the rules and regulations of marriage, God's going to judge them. But marriage is honorable in all. Marriage is honorable in the sight of God, and marriage is honorable in the sight of men. Always has been. In every age, in every generation, in every century, in every culture, in every nation, marriage is honorable. When you do it properly and you do it right, it needs to be in the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 7, 39, Paul says, you know, according to the law, as long as a, a husband is alive, the woman is bound by the law to her husband. But if her husband be dead, she's at liberty to marry whom she will, and then there's a comma right here, only in the Lord. Wonder why that's there. Wonder why that's there. Wonder why that little phrase is there. Because God's word gives us the guidelines for how a man and a woman can live together in an honorable way, in an honorable manner, in the sight of God, in the sight of men. And it's not to be put away. The very first man, the very first woman was Adam and Eve. We find where God created Adam with the dust of the earth, breathing his nostrils breath of life, he became a living soul. He then said it's not good for man to be alone, and he took a rib right out of his side, right next to his heart. And he made a woman. He brought the woman to the man. And when Adam received her, he says, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. For this cause shall a man leave his mother and his father, and they twain shall cleave, uh, shall cleave together, he shall cleave to his wife, and these twain shall become one flesh. This shows how intimate this is, that this is a bond that's not to be broken. There's no other relationship like it. Not even the relationship of, of parents and children. It's, this is a very unique relationship. If you come to the book of Ephesians chapter 5, you'll find the rule book and the handbook for marriage. You'll find guidelines for the husband, guidelines for the wife. But I don't want to go into detail about that this morning. I just want to come down to the next to the last verse. He said, for this is a great mystery concerning the union of a man and a woman as husband and wife. How the husband loved the wife as Christ loved the church. Gave himself for it to nourish her and cherish her. And to love her as his own body. And she is to reverence him, to respect him, encourage him, support him, etc. He said, this is a great mystery I speak concerning Christ and the church. When God established marriage in the very beginning, there was a pattern already set before it called Christ and his church. Whereas God created or made woman from a rib out of Adam's side and brought her to the man, I read in God's word where God foreknew his people, chose his people, elected his people, named his people, and gave them to his son in a covenant relationship before time ever began. And in God's word, his son is always referred to as the groom and the bride is the family of God, the children of God. And I can assure you there will never be a separation, much less a divorce, between God and his children. So there's the pattern. There's the pattern. Jesus is invited to the wedding. Jesus would not have attended the wedding had not the wedding been done proper. I can assure you that. Do you remember when three men came to where Abraham was back in Genesis chapter 18? They came to the tent door in the heat of the day and they entered into a time of fellowship with Abraham and God communicated with Abraham some things he was about to do to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. The next chapter, chapter 19, he comes to the household of Lot. But there's only two. One of the three is missing. Two, these are two angels, but the third person missing is the Lord. 
the Lord granted Abraham his presence in Genesis 18. He did not do so with Lot in Genesis 19. That's because Lot lived in two wicked cities, and the Lord will not grace those cities with his presence. So we find Mary was already there. Perhaps she was there to assist and to serve. I'm sure she was quite acquainted, or she would not have been there, but Jesus was called to the wedding. And notice, and also his disciples, which we've identified as being five. You ever heard somebody say, somebody's a friend, and they introduce themselves, uh, uh, introduce somebody else to them as a friend, and they'll say, well, a friend of yours is a friend of mine. That might not work out altogether sometimes in man's world. But if you're a disciple of Christ, and I'm a disciple of Christ, we'll have a good time of fellowship with each other, shouldn't we? If Christ is walking with you, and I walk with Christ, then we can walk together. So they invited Christ and his disciples, which are five, and they all came, adding to the number of people that was already at the wedding. Then Mary comes to the Lord. Now, there's a Mary in this miracle in John chapter 2, and there's a Mary in the miracle over here in John chapter 11. These two miracles have some similarities and also some contrasts. Mary here is identified as the mother of our Lord. That's an audible title. It's a title God gave her when he chose her as a virgin woman to bring forth his son into this world. That's an audible title, isn't it? And she wore it in a very honorable way. When you trace the life of Mary, the mother of Jesus, from the time we first read of her to the time we finish reading of her in Acts chapter 1, you're going to find she lived an honorable life. God chose an honorable woman. He chose a virtuous woman. She was not only a virgin, she was virtuous, and there can be a difference. So Mary is there, and Mary says to Jesus, her son, she says, there is no wine. They want wine, and there is no wine. That's all she said. And the Lord replied to her in somewhat of a strange way, it might seem. He said, woman, what have I to do with thee? For mine hour has not yet come. Now, when he addressed her as woman, he was not being disrespectful. He'll do that again on the cross. You go to John chapter 19. The Lord Jesus Christ is on the cross. And even in his agony and his pain and all of his sufferings, he's still thinking about others. What an example Jesus is. Let me tell you this. In every scripture of instruction and edification and teaching is in the word of God concerning how we ought to behave as God's people, as disciples of Jesus Christ, you will always find that perfected and exemplified in Jesus. Always. How important is it to be thinking of others? I've witnessed this in talking to different people who are almost on their, almost on their deathbed and when you're talking to them, they're inquiring about the church. They're inquiring about the family that they love so well in the house of God. They're not bringing attention to themselves. They're, they're trying to find out how, how so-and-so doing. It's amazing. They can be in such agony, such pain, and such weakness, but yet in their mind, their heart, they're thinking about other people. The Lord Jesus Christ is on the cross, and he looks down, and there's Mary. And there's that disciple whom he loveth, which is no question it's the apostle John. John never identified himself as who he was, but there's no question it's John. And he says unto Mary, his mother, he says, Woman, behold thy son. And he says unto John, Behold thy mother. The Lord Jesus Christ was still looking after the welfare of his mother just moments before he's going to lay his life down on Calvary. 
What an example that is. The Lord referred to her as woman. See, in his humanity as a son of man, the Lord Jesus Christ came through the lineage of David. He was a son of David, as they stated oftentimes in the Gospels. Christ uh, asked them, what think you of Christ? They replied, well, he's a son of David, and he was. And he was a son of Mary in his humanity. But in terms of his lordship, he was lord over David, and he was lord over Mary. Now, you go back to the second chapter of Luke, you'll find the Lord Jesus Christ at 12 years of age. And they've been to Jerusalem to worship, they're heading back to Nazareth. And they lose Jesus along the way. After one day's travel, they realize they don't have him with them, and they turn and go back to find him, and it takes them three days, and they go back. They find him sitting there with the doctors and the lawyers. And Mary's quite upset and somewhat rebukes the Lord Jesus Christ. She says, oh, you, your father and I have been sorrying. You can imagine how it was. But Jesus said, must not, must not I be about my father's business? He wasn't talking about Joseph there. He was talking about his father in heaven. He wasn't talking about being a carpenter's son there. He was talking about being God's beloved son. And then the Bible says that he went with them back to Nazareth being subject unto them. Here's the Lord of glory being subject unto Mary and Joseph. Because at this time he's 12 years old and he knows what the Father's will is that children be in subjection to the parents. Even at 12, the Son of God is in subjection to Mary and Joseph. But not now. He's 30 years of age now. He's still her son, but he's also her Lord. He says, woman, what have I to do with thee? He says, for mine hour has not yet come. See, up to this point, Christ has not performed a miracle. Now, let's say a little bit about that. We get through reading the end of this event that takes place. We're going to be told this, the beginning of the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's his first miracle. His first miracle in contrast here with that of raising Lazarus from the dead. This miracle is held in Cana of Galilee in a remote place in the country, far away from the activity, far away from the bright lights of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where all the activity was. That's where the most of the people lived. That's where all this, they say, the action was, the action taking place. Now, you might have thought Jesus performed his first miracle down there in front of the great multitudes, in front of far more people than what's going to happen up here. Not so. Philippians 2, 5, Paul tells us, Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbed him equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. That's the very opposite of the way man acts, the very opposite of the way man thinks, the very opposite of the way man behaves himself. Man in nature likes to be noticed. Man in nature likes to be commended. Man by nature likes to have a pat on the back. Man by nature loves his publicity, doesn't he? But not Jesus. You know, in John chapter 6, we find where they came to make Jesus a king. You know what he did? He separated himself from them and went up to a mountain alone. Let this mind be in you, the mind of humility. Let this mind be in you that's also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, it's not water to be equal with God because he was God manifest in the flesh. But he made himself with no reputation. He didn't come to be a famous person, in other words. And yet he's the most famous person who's ever walked the shores of time, right? Most famous person. He says, my time has not yet come. Now, we find in studying John's gospel that Jesus Christ was on a heavenly timetable. You'll find this expression used six times in John's gospel. 
Three times he will say, my time has not yet come, and three times he'll say, my time has come. So what's he talking about here in John chapter 2? I think initially he's letting Mary know, I'm not, I'm not just your son, I'm your Lord. I'm on a heavenly timetable. But notice when Mary says they have no wine, that's all she said. She didn't tell him what to do. But she put it out there, there's a need. <laughs> and I believe in her heart she felt like Jesus would provide the need for that occasion right there. See, it would be very embarrassing for them to run out of wine. That was a principal drink in that particular day. You know, you had three principal drinks in contrast to what we have available today. You had water, you had wine, and you had milk. And they oftentimes watered the wine down, by the way, like three parts water and part wine. But they have no wine. Here's the problem. That's all she says. She presents him with the circumstances, which, of course, he already knew. She didn't acquaint him with anything, inform him about anything he wasn't already aware of. And here's the Lord's response. Woman, what have I to do with thee? I'm, near, I'm here to do my heavenly father's will now. You know, he had been an obedient child, I'm sure. Well, I know he was. As I've said before, I know it had to be hard on Mary and Joseph when the other siblings come along. When the other brothers and sisters come along, and we know that he had some brothers and sisters, and they were not perfect like Jesus. Jesus was the perfect one. He was the firstborn. And I'm sure there are times Mary probably said to them, at least said to herself, why can't you be like Jesus? <laughs> why can't you be like Jesus? He's always done what I told him to do. He's never said anything back to me. He has always been, a, a, you know, a, a perfect, obedient child. I've had a few parents along the way, believe it or not, who tried to make me think their child was perfect. <laughs> it's just not true. There's only been one perfect child, one perfect man to live here in this world, and that was Jesus Christ. Jesus. Now we come over here to John chapter 11, and we find where Jesus is about 20 miles away from Bethany where Lazarus lived. Lazarus, Mary, and Joseph. Here's the other Mary, but see, you know, people didn't have last names. In biblical days, last names only came into existence around 1000 A.D. when people started having last names. But there were a lot of people with the same name. So know who you're talking about. There had to be something attached to that name to separate them from somebody else. So we had several Marys. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now we know which Mary is under consideration. Mary Magdalene, whom God, uh, Jesus cast seven devils out of. Now we know which Mary. Now we got Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Now we know which Mary, right? What, was, what, was, what went along with the name of Jesus? See, there's other men. There was other people who had that same name. So how did you distinguish the Son of God from others? He's called Jesus of Nazareth. He's always called Jesus of Nazareth through the four Gospels and the book of Acts, never after that. Four Gospels and Acts, never after that. He's Jesus of Nazareth. And that was not something to boast about. Nazareth was a city the Jewish people in general looked down upon. That's why Nathaniel responded like he did. When Philip came to him and says, We have found him, Moses, and the law did write the Messiah, Jesus, whom Moses recorded about. Jesus of Nazareth, and how did he respond? He says, What good thing could come out of Nazareth? I might say that about any town and city in the world today. What good thing comes out of Nashville? 
What good thing comes out of New York City? The big apple, I call it the rotten apple. What good thing comes out of Los Angeles? What good thing comes out of Goodlessville? We'll just bring it on home, right? What good thing comes out of Goodlessville? We're all as an unclean thing, Job says. The only good thing that ever lived in this world that was good intrinsically, my friends, and personified in that manner and way was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He said, my hour has not yet come. Now this also uh, dispels the, the thought, the teachings that goes on in the world today that the Lord Jesus Christ performed miracles when he was a child, when he was a boy. That is not true. In Romans chapter 3, Paul tells us, let God be true and every man a liar. There's not one word in God's word that tells me and teaches me that Jesus Christ ever did a miracle prior to John chapter 2. There's very little said about the life of Jesus from the time he's conceived to the time he's 30, except in John, uh, Luke 2, when he was 12 years old, that I made reference to just a little bit while ago. There's his conception, there's his birth, there's his circumcision uh, that took place. And then there he is at 12 years of age, and that's about it. In fact, that is it. The Lord never did miracles also for show. He never did miracles for entertainment. When Christ did a miracle, just like Moses, when Moses did a miracle, it was because of a necessity. It was a need for it. When Christ did a miracle, there was a need for it. He never done it for show, never done it for the applause of men. There was also always a reason for it. In this case here, in just about every case, it was to strengthen the faith of the disciples that was following now this is referred to here in John's gospel as a sign. My time, my hour has not yet come. We look in John chapter 7 verse 30. And you'll find where it says, And they came and no man laid hands on him, because his hour had not yet come. In John 8 and 20, he's in the temple teaching. They don't like what he's teaching. They came to take him. The Bible says no man laid hands on him, because... His hour had not yet come. See, Matthew, Mark, and Luke mentioned nothing about any of this. Only John. Then we come to John 12, 23. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, Mine hour has come. He said, Except a quart of wheat fall on the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if you fall on the ground and die, it brings forth much fruit. He, he's talking about his death and his resurrection here. You know, you can go plant a, to plant a garden, you buy the seed, but if you never put it in the soil, you're not going to have anything to put in the freezer, right? You can't just leave it on the, on the shelf. It's got to be planted into the soil. And the Lord Jesus Christ came to save his people from their sins. And for that to happen, he had to be crucified, taken off and put into a barn tomb. And he was there for three days and three nights and he came out of there. And when he did... It made all the family of God sure to have the same experience some sweet day right, coming out of the grave in the morning of the resurrection at the end of time. My time has not yet come. But now he says my time has come. I can tell you all here this morning that so far up to this moment my time has not yet come. But I don't know when I'll ever be able to say my time has come. Jesus could. John 13, 1, one of my favorite expressions. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his time had come to depart out of this world to be with the Father, 
Jesus uses a word here, depart, a word departs used concerning Jesus, which means to untie, it means to, un uh, to loose, it means to free. When his time had come to depart out of this world, to what? To be with the Father. You know what that tells me? That tells me just like when Jesus left this world, he immediately was with the Father, and the same thing is true with every child of grace, every child of promise, every heir of God, every object of God's love, when they draw their last breath, they immediately depart this world to be with the Father. Then we come to John 17, 1. And this is what we call the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a prayer Jesus actually prayed. In John chapter 6, the Lord taught his disciples how to pray. And that's called the Lord's Prayer, but it's not a prayer Jesus prayed. It's a, he gives the model, he gives the example, he gives the outline, so to speak, of how we're to pray. But in John 17, Jesus prayed. He lifts his eyes to heaven. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son, he might also glorify thee. As I was giving him power over all flesh. I'm going to back up and I'm going to say this real slow because I want you to get it. He said, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. As thou hast given him power over all flesh in heaven and earth that he should give eternal life to as many as the Father hath given him. What did he just say? He says the Father has given him somebody and somebody God the Father gave him, he's going to give to them, not offer them, he's going to give unto them eternal life. See, God has never offered eternal life. He gives eternal life. It's, it's been promised. Titus 1, 2, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Mine hour has not yet come now. We go over here to John chapter 11. We find where Mary and Martha sent a messenger to the Lord Jesus Christ. That messenger comes and here's what he says to Jesus. He says, him whom thou lovest is sick, Lazarus. He doesn't tell him Lazarus was sick. He says, him whom thou lovest. Jesus loved Lazarus. Two verses down from that, it says, And Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Now, I know he loved them before time ever began. I know they're in the family of Christ. I know he loved them before the foundation of the world. But here we see a timely, manifested love of Christ to this family. This family loved Jesus. They proved it. Time and time again, they proved how they loved Jesus. They had him in their home. Remember the last part of Luke chapter 10? When Mary sat at feet of Jesus and there's Martha serving one thing and another, they had him in their home. They proved time and time again by displaying their generous hospitality toward the Savior. The messenger goes back home because Jesus is going to spend two more days right where he's at. Now I've got a point in this. When Jesus finally goes and gets over there and tells to roll the stone away, Martha says, Lord, he said, behold, he stinketh. He'd been dead four days. That tells me when the messenger came to where Jesus was initially, Lazarus died that day. He died the day the messenger came. Now, I think he was living when the messenger left, all right, because the messenger tells Jesus, him who thou livest, behold, he's sick. But somewhere along the journey, Lazarus died that day. Jesus knew it. Now, we notice here, just like when Mary, his mother, told him they have no wine, he, she didn't tell him what to do. Mary and Martha do not tell Jesus what to do. They're just making Jesus aware of the situation. 
When I say aware of it, that's from our perspective. Jesus was already aware of it. Jesus knew everything that was going on uh, there in Bethany with Lazarus. But it's like we do when we pray. Do you really make Jesus aware of anything when you pray? Do you think you inform him of anything? Do you think you enlighten him about anything? You don't think he already knows everything there is to know about you? He knows who you are, where you're at, what's going on, what you're doing, what your health is, what your bank account is. He knows the very hairs of your head. And that's quite, a, quite an awesome task, isn't it? <laughs> I bet you every man in here doesn't have the same number of hair on his head today as you had yesterday. The total continuously changes. I must have had a whole lot of it when I was young. <laughs> I'll never forget going to the basketball game. Our son was playing. And that's when these VCRs come out. And these great big ones, you held them on your shoulder. And I was filming and playing in the basketball game. And then I gave it to somebody else. And I got down below. That thing got heavy. We got home that night and put it on and looking at it. And I said, well, who's that guy there? <laughs> they said, that's you, Dad. I said, oh, he's got a ball spot back there. I said, that's you, Dad. See, when I look in the mirror, I don't see what's behind. I just see what's up here, right? <laughs> Number of the hairs of my head have changed daily all my life, no doubt. And yet God in any particular time knows exactly how many you got on your head. That's how he cares for you. That shows what a concern and care he has for you here. He loves you that much. A spire cannot fall without the knowledge of the Father. That's what Jesus said. Right? They didn't tell Jesus what to do. Jesus said this, this sickness is not unto death. He did not say Lazarus wouldn't die. He's just saying this sickness is not a death. It's for the glory of God. Both these miracles be for the glory of God. Now, where was this first miracle took place at? In a remote area, way up here, a long ways away from the bustling life of Jerusalem. Bethany is only two miles outside of Jerusalem. This second miracle is going to take place in a very public setting. It's going to take place in front of Mary and Martha, the disciples, and many Jews who come there to mourn with them and to pass up Lazarus. It was a public display of his great power. That's not the case in John chapter 2. Now, Mary says unto the servants, and this is the best advice I've ever heard come from the lips of man or woman. Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Got any better advice than that? What you, I can't say that about a lot of people I know. I wouldn't dare tell my children to do something, to, whatever some so-and-so said do. I wouldn't dare tell them to do that. When it comes to the Lord, I can say it. Whatsoever the Father saith, whatsoever the Son saith, do it. That's all she said. You know what that tells me? That tells me that Mary still had some anticipation, had some hope within her heart, within her breath, that Jesus was going to take control of this situation. They have no wine. She says, take these six water pots right here. They'll hold two or three perkins apiece. It's hard to, it's, this is a little difficult. I've tried to determine exactly how, what the quantity is here, and it's not easily attained, but I think it's somewhere around nine, ten gallons per water pot. He says, fill it with water. We notice how many water pots are, there are six water pots. In the word of God, six always is one number short of what? Short, short of seven, isn't it? Well, what about the number seven? Num number seven is a number of completion and perfection. 
Man's always coming up short of that. You know when the Israelites marched around Jericho? They marched around the city of Jericho one time a day for six days and nothing ever happened. But when they marched around Jericho the seventh day and seven times and shouted, the walls fell flat. We're going to find there's six water pots. He said, fill them with water. Job 5, 19, it says, I'll be with thee in the six troubles, and the seventh, no evil shall touch thee. That word, that number six there is, a, I think, a, a number that embraces all the trials and tribulations and sorrows and heartaches we can experience here in life. And the Lord said, I'll be with you through all of them. Anybody want to raise a hand and say, well, I can think of one where he wasn't there. I don't think anybody would do that. And he said, the seventh, no evil shall touch thee. I believe that's the picture of death itself. No evil's going to touch you in that seventh trouble. I'm going to be there for you. Fill these six water pots up with water to the brim. Then you pour out to the governor of the feast. I don't know who he was. A lot of speculation who he was. But I would say of all the people there, maybe he was the VIP. I want you to pour it out to him first. The Lord didn't taste it. He didn't say taste it first. You know, um, the Karen's always want me to be the guinea pig in the kitchen. She'll, she'll be cooking something. She says, come here, I want you to taste these beans. Didn't eat anything. It's hard to lose weight when you're the tester. <laughs> taste this, taste that. Because I'm glad to volunteer. <laughs> oh, it's just right. Don't do anything different. That's just right. Oh, you might want to add a little salt to it. No, Jesus didn't ask anybody to taste that wine. That's because he made the wine. He made the wine. And you go ahead and pour it out. You can pour it out to the governor. You don't have to taste it first. Pour it out to the governor. And the governor tasted that wine. You know what his response was? He was amazed. He was impressed. He said, men usually set the best wine out first. And after men have drunk, drank it for a while and got a little intoxicated, basically, they take the good away and bring the worst out there because they don't know any different. He said, you say the best for last. You say the best for last. Doesn't the Lord always say the best for last? See, it was good back in the Old Testament day, wasn't it? When God gave Israel the oracles of God, he gave them the prophets, he gave them the priesthood, he gave them the word of God, the 39 books of the Old Testament, he gave them the formal manner and way of worship in the Old Testament day. And then the Lord comes along and fulfills the law to a jot and a tittle and he, he establishes the gospel church. Oh, it's better now. I'm telling you, it's better now. We got it better than Moses and them did in the Old Testament day. We got a complete Bible. But we got gifts that God has given to his church to be able to proclaim the wonderful word of God. We have a setting where the hearts and souls of God's people can rejoice and can be fed sheep, being fed by the shepherd of the sheep. We've got it better. But bless your hearts and souls. I'm telling you here this morning, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And that's what the Lord was telling, I think, Martha over here in John chapter 11. The Lord comes and he first of all meets Martha and Martha says to him, says, Lord, she says, if you'd only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. <laughs> oh, now Martha, you know better than that. 
The Lord didn't have to personally be by the bedside of Lazarus to keep him awake or keep him, uh, keep him alive. Uh, this is wasn't the problem. And the Lord responds like this. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. This is the fifth I am statement in John's gospel. The fifth one. I am the resurrection and the life. And she says, and he says, thy brother shall rise again. She says, Lord, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. He says unto Martha, he said, he that liveth and believeth on me, he said, he that uh, liveth and believeth on me shall never die. He that, he that liveth and believeth on me shall never die. And then he reverses that. I've gotten that a little bit backwards. Anyway, he reverses that. To teach us right here that there are those who believe and shall never die, and those who are died that believe shall never die. Now, how is that? When the Lord comes again, he's going to speak, and there are those who pass this scene of life who are buried in the graves, and they're going to come forth, but there are going to be those who are living. He that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Now, I finally got it right. And they're going to be translated. I am the resurrection and the life. If, if the Lord couldn't conquer death, what good did it do to turn water into wine? The last enemy is death. If the Lord can't conquer death, what, what are we doing here? I'm expected to die someday. I'm delaying it as much as possible. I'm trying to take care of myself. I try to stop at the stop signs and the stop lights, and I try to keep my speed uh, close to the speed limit. I try to eat right, exercise right to some extent. I stray away a little bit every now and then. I don't smoke and don't drink. My wife prayed before she ever met me that the Lord bless her to meet somebody who didn't smoke, didn't drink, like to go to church. She hit a grand slam. She, she hit a grand slam when she got me. But I hit two when I got her. <laughs> I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he that liveth and believeth me shall never die. When I go to the doctor, I don't want him to come out with a medical book. I went to see him and not to learn something off the pages of a book. If I need a lawyer, I don't want him to come out and hand out me with his briefcase and all the papers and everything. I want a lawyer. Comes time to die, my friends. I want the Savior. I want the Savior. See, he took the old, he, he brought the resurrection out of the types and shadows of the Old Testament. He brought them out of there into, into the open, into reality. He took it from just being words in a book into himself. I am the resurrection and the life. I am. The great I am. When Jesus turned that water into wine, those five disciples who had been following him had been following him who had never seen a miracle. But now they see one and their faith is strengthened. There was a man one time and he was given a drink. And somebody said something to him about it. He said, well, you know, the Lord turned water into wine. He said, well, if you're going to use the Lord for your example, how about using him for example for church attendance? 
about using him for example of dedication and faithfulness and doing the Father's will? You're going to use him as an example for that. Then use him for this. And then there was a man one time, he was had the trouble with drinking and he got over it and, and somebody was trying to lure him back into it. So you know that Jesus turned water into wine, don't you? He said, yeah, but let me tell you what Jesus did with wine in my household. He turned wine into food and into clothes and furniture for my family. That's what he did. He understood what the Lord had done for him. He said, the best for last. When the Lord, Lord returns, the best is going to be then, right? You ever been in a meeting? This happens oftentimes. Be a three-day meeting. Preach Friday night, Saturday, maybe once or twice, then Sunday. Somebody come through the handshake and say, you know, you say the best for last. Maybe did, maybe didn't. You know why it seems like it's the best? It was called most likely, if you were there Friday night and Saturday and Sunday, you were far more spiritual on Sunday than you were on Friday night. It takes a while to get the world off, don't it? It takes a while to shake it off. It takes a while to move in from the cold to the warm. It takes a while to move out from the world into the house of God. And the more you're there, the better it sounds, right? <laughs> the better it sounds. Say the best for last. So I say, this is the best meeting we've ever had. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. But if you think it's the best, that's good. I'm glad. You know, you used to go to Sears and buy paint, and they had good, better, and best. Remember that? Well, Sears don't even exist anymore. Well, I'm telling you, the Lord was good in the Old Testament, better in the New Testament. It's going to be best when he comes again. Good, better, and best. I'm, we get a foretaste of the best right now, don't we? I'm so, I'm so happy to be here today. <laughs> Somebody said, any other place you'd rather be than here today? No. You'd rather be in Paris, France? No. You'd rather be in London, Inc.? No. You'd rather be fishing? No. Where'd I rather be than right here? No place. I'm right where I want to be because I'm enjoying the very best that God has given his children. I close here from Isaiah 55, 1. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. Come by wine and milk and money, by wine and milk and water without money and without price. The most important things, the most valuable things in this life here cannot be bought with money. Cannot be bought with money. The Lord has given us the best there he is. He's given us his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then given us the word of God where we can understand it, where we can read about it, and we can rejoice in the Savior's love, rejoice in the fact that God loved you, loved me so great, he gave his only begotten son. He gave the very best he had, his only begotten son. May we give him the best we have. May we give him the best of our minds and our hearts and our lives while we, while we have the opportunity who knows what tomorrow may bring, my friends. Uh, I know, all I know is this. Uh, somebody said, I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds tomorrow. Well, let me tell you, you do know something about tomorrow or the future, and you know there's going to be an end time, there's going to be a resurrection, and the Lord's going to come and gather you home in his arms, brother, and take you into glory. You know that. You know that. The best is yet to come.